So just uh, last week we preached on three verses. This week we're preaching on a hundred and something verses. All right, I just want to set the expectation. All right, it's, it'll probably be a little bit longer, but I'm hoping it won't be too much longer than, than last week. Um, and and the, the purpose, I think, just to set it out there, out, out front, is that God is coming to dwell with his people he re- rescued and redeemed them through the exodus and through the sort of the fireworks of the exodus and all the plagues. He came and redeemed them out of Egypt and out of their bondage to slavery so that they may worship him. And now he's meeting with them. He's coming to dwell with them so that they may worship him. And I don't know if you know this or not, but loneliness is a serious problem in our country. Uh, are you lonely? Well, you're not alone in that feeling, no pun intended. And it's not just a problem in our country, but all over the world. And technology has not, uh, and especially social media, has made promises that it couldn't keep. Everyone, you know, it made the promises that everyone is going to be connected everywhere all the time. And that has not solved our loneliness problem, but actually made it worse. There are reasons uh, this is the case. Andy Crouch, in his book, The Life We're Looking For, documents some of these reasons. He says, um, loneliness, this lonely planet we live on, everyone is seeing it and recognized. Physicians see it. Vivek Murthy, who was Obama and Biden's Surgeon General, said this, during my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart disease or diabetes, Diabetes, it was loneliness. Uh, Politicians all over the world see it. Minister Theresa May of the United Kingdom appointed a cabinet minister for loneliness in 2018. Uh, Businesses see it. There's big money in offsetting loneliness. Objective social isolation cost the U.S. Medicare system $6.7 billion annually. And loneliness is a, is a serious problem. And there are many reasons for that, as I've just n- noted, but there's one primary reason loneliness is a problem. Or to explain the problem of loneliness, it all started back at the beginning. When Adam and Eve chose to sin against God's command, loneliness entered the world. I'm not saying loneliness is due to your sin necessarily, but I'm saying because sin entered the world, it separated us from a perfect God. It separated us from perfect fellowship with a perfect God. And because of our connection to Adam and he as our head, it severed our relationship to God as well. And and since then, we have been alienated from God. Adam and Eve were alienated from God, kicked out of the garden. We have been alienated from God, kicked out of the garden, and lonely. But the story of the rest of the Bible is about how God is restoring his people to have a relationship with him. How to have a relationship with each other. And how to take part in their their God-ordained calling on this earth. But the thing we must remember is this is God's work. His restoring, his redemption is first his work, not man's work. And yet he gives us work, he gives his people work to do. So when we, as we return to Exodus this fall, we are in the last half of the book. The people are at Mount Sinai. And God is giving his law to his people through his mediator, Moses. 
we are, we are here in the last half of the last half of Exodus where most people skip their Bible reading. You get to the tabernacle and you're like, I'm good. Uh, but the instructions about the tabernacle, though we might say boring or who cares, how is this relevant to my life at all, uh, one of the reasons this section is boring to us is because most of us are reading it in the wrong way. No one reads instructions on how to build a tent for fun, right? I, okay, well, maybe we need to have a discussion about what fun is. Uh, if you read an REI instruction manual like you, like you read a Brandon Sanderson novel, you're going to be very disappointed, right? You, you, don't, you don't read it before you go to bed. You don't, I don't think you do, or maybe you do read it so you can go to sleep. Maybe you have insomnia. You're not supposed to, Okay. They're instructions for putting a tent together, right? A REA instruction tent manual is for instructions how to put a tent together. The question, how is this relevant to my life? How is the instructions of the tabernacle, a tent, relevant to my life is a good question. But we can't blame the text when we're reading it if we're reading it the wrong way. Does that make sense? Okay, it's a, it's a tough crowd this morning again. So we, we won't read every verse, but we're going to start in Exodus 26. And we want to remember that as we're reading it, we're reading it as instructions to the priests so they know how to build the temple. They know what, they, they, you know, they know what pole goes in, in and what stake goes into the ground. And if you knew me, me trying to tell you how to build a tent it w is pretty funny in itself. However, God is giving them instructions how to build a tent so he might dwell with them. He might take care of their loneliness problem. He might take care of their alienation. So hear God's word in Exodus 26, 1 through 7. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim, skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another, and you shall make fifty clasps of gold, and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. Now that's the most we're going to read of the instructions. But I want you to see is that God is making a tabernacle. And in the very name, he's telling us what he has come to do. Every part of God's word is relevant and points to the meaning of life in some way, but every part is not relevant in the same way. So what does the tabernacle in Exodus have to do with the meaning of life and how, our lone, and, and, and how it deals with our loneliness problem? Friends, Exodus is a story about God's redemption and his people. 
God redeemed his people out of Egypt with a strong hand, defeated their enemies and, and defeated Pharaoh and all of their gods who were competing with the true God. He brought them through the Red Sea in spectacular fashion, worthy of the big screen. And he brought them into the wilderness to care for them and to test them. And, and what they found when they were in the wilderness is that Egypt was not their greatest problem. It was not their only problem. Egypt was a huge problem, and they enslaved the Israelites. It was terrible, and it was a big problem. Their other big problem was their own hearts. And as they wandered through the wilderness, doubting God, grumbling against the mediator God had provided them in Moses, they found that their sin was greater than the enslavement in Egypt. They were enslaved to their sin. And what God is doing in the Bible and what God is doing in Exodus and I hope what God is doing in your life is a work of redemption so that we are no, they were no longer alienated from him but redeemed, bought back with a price. God's redemption is not our work, it's his work. And, and full redemption, the full redemption that we will experience when we see God face to face, those who have faith in him and have repented of their sins, that full redemption will be us seeing him, dwelling with us. Are you lonely? Are you alienated? God is coming at you, dear friend. He, he's, he's coming at you in the person of Jesus Christ, and it's shown in the very name of the tabernacle and the construction of the tabernacle. And we can just put the tabernacle slide up there, I hardly ever do slides, and you could probably tell because it's not as good as it should be. However, this is a, re a, um, a representation of what the tabernacle looked like. There it is, the, the covering over there, and, and as you go out from the tabernacle, you go into the courtyard, and you come to the entrance at the curtain. The entrance always faced east. So as people were coming into the court or the tabernacle, into the courtyard, into the tabernacle, they were coming east, going west, into God's presence. And you remember that Adam and Eve, when they were kicked out of the garden, and all their progeny are now east of Eden, they're always coming back west, coming home. But the very tabernacle itself, in its name, describes what God is doing. He's not only come to redeem them and then leave them to themselves, he's come to dwell with them. The, the name means dwelling. Exodus 25, 8 and 9. God had said, even the chapter previous to this one, he says, and let them make a sanctuary that I may what? That I may, go ahead, say it, dwell in their, let's try that again, that I may, yes, good, I love it, in their midst. God wants to be with his people. God is not content, not, sorry for the poor grammar, God's not content not to be with his people. He must be with his people, and now he's making a way in the tabernacle, the tent of meetings, the dwelling place. So how will God solve the alienation problem with his people, the sin problem with his people? He will dwell with them. He will be their God, and they will be his people. A tabernacle, dear friend, is a shadow, a sign of a greater reality to come. It's the place where God came to dwell with his people. And that's the first thing God wants you to know. 
God comes to dwell with his people so that they might worship him. And God has come to dwell with you because your alienation problem is also a worship problem. One, one pastor, John Piper, said it like this in his book on missions. Missions exists because worship does not. Right? God, God is on a mission to dwell with his people through the, through the spreading of the gospel so that disciples might come in, but not just come in, but come in to worship him. That's what you were made for. That's what we talked about in, in Psalm 134. You were made to worship him, and now he's made a way to do that. That's him dwelling with us. He comes to them so they might worship him. He not only comes to them, but he, he also gives them specific instructions on how they should worship him. So the rest of chapter 26 and chapter 27, you'll notice a certain refrain as it goes through. Uh, God giving the priests instructions on how to do the tabernacle, how to build the tabernacle because God wants worship done in a certain way. It's not up to you how to worship God. It's up to God how, you, how we worship God. We don't just come to him whatever way we want. God says, you, you must come to me in the way I want you to come to me. And so in verse 11, you, you can see this repre- repeated refrain, you shall make 50 clasps. Verse 14, you shall make a covering for the tent. Verse 15, you shall make frames. Verse 26, you shall make bars of acacia wood for the sides. And so what God is, is giving them is instructions on how to build that tabernacle area there on the, on the slide, the, the place where he makes his presence dwell, where the pillar of smoke is. He's telling them, I, I want it to be framed up I want it to be covered because that's where I'm going to make my presence dwell with you. And while everything in God's word is true and profitable, not everything, uh, every detail is of equal importance. And so God says, you shall, you shall, you shall. God has come to dwell with them so they might worship him. He's given instructions on how they might worship him because he loves them. He he wants them to worship him the right way because that is best for them because that's what they we're created for, and so he does it. You shall, you shall, and you can read later on, and I encourage you to do it because I'm not gonna read it. You can read Exodus 36 and 38 that they did exactly as God had told them to do, and they did. They made the 50 class. They made the covering for the tent. They made the frames and the, and the, the bars of acacia wood for the side, and they made the altar. They did all of that according to God's word. But in Exodus 26, verses 1 and verse 31, you notice another repetition. Not just you shall make, but there's another repetition in exactly what they should make. Let's read, uh, I'll read 1 again and then we'll go to 31. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of fine twine linen, blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. Verse 31. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia wood, of acacia overlaid with gold and with hooks of gold and four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. 
And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite of the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold. And you shall, be, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. This is God's word. So friends, what we see in the building of the tabernacle, in the, in, in the making of the, the tent and, and the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place is that God cares about beauty because he is beautifully holy. God we has them weave into the very fabric in, in the view of of the tent of meetings and of the, the veil that separated cherubim. And we just should remember that uh, what, what separate, what, what kept guard at the entrance of the, of the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were, were kicked out. It were, this is the same word, the cherubim. They stood there with flaming swords, not letting Adam and Eve back into the garden unless they ate of the tree of, of life. And here it is, back in this, this other temple, this, this tabernacle of, of meetings, a dwelling place of God and man, somewhat like the Garden of Eden, the priests are coming, the people are coming in, and the priests are coming into the holy place, and what stands on guard in the most holy place are the cherubim, because God is holy, holy, holy. And as the instructions give us it is working from the most holy place to the, to the courtyard. It's going from, from holiness to, to uh, less holiness. It's going from, from God in his holiness to people in their sin. And, and, and in order to get to God in his holiness, people have to sacrifice on the altar, be cleansed at the, at the, at the laver. The priest, the priest, the high priest has to take the blood of the sacrifice into the holy place. And then into the holy of, of holies is where God dwells. And, and he will accept the sacrifice of sins in order for the people to be forgiven and for God to dwell with them. Oh, friends, don't you see the holiness of God? But this holiness of God actually uh, causes a problem. Because as we've already talked about, God, can, God is holy and cannot dwell in the presence of sin. That is, that is why there is a veil separating the people from, from God's presence. There's a veil separating the, the holy place from the most holy place. And Israelites are sinners. So God cannot dwell with the Israelites in their sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug, as they say. He can't just pass over it. Exodus is full of the redeeming love, the spectacular power and unmeasured grace of God, but it's also a story of sinful people like you and me. Moses was sinful. The people were sinful. But God was gracious. But he was also holy. They are sinful and they cannot be in his presence. And God is holy and, he's, and we see that in the very construction of the, the tabernacle and and while the tabernacle reveals God's presence, it also conceals a lot for the people. There's a holy of holy place where no one else can go but the high priest once a year and in order to bring in the blood of the sacrifice. 
And he, the, the priest had to offer for his own sin and then the sins of the people, and then he could go in. And, it, and it, if he was clean, then God would accept the sacrifice. How was he supposed to make a sacrifice? Here's the problem. How is he supposed to do that? What, what, what's happening? You know, God's telling them they, 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 they cannot be unholy in his presence. How are they to do it? Exodus 27, verse one. You shall make the altar of acacia wood five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. And there it is placed in the courtyard so the people could come in and make the sacrifice or have the priest make the sacrifice for them. God is providing for them the very thing they need to dwell in his presence. He, he demands holiness, and then he provides the very thing that they need in order to be in his presence, atonement for their sin. You may ask, and this is a good question, okay? I, I want to get into your brains and, and think about how, how should we, sometimes we read the Bible, if we grew up in church and we read the Bible as Christians and we just pass over things and we don't ask good questions. We need to ask good questions of the Bible because it wants to answer them. You may ask, why does God's holiness demand a blood sacrifice? Has anyone ever wondered that? Well, it's a good question. So let me tell you a story about John and Todd. They're made-up names, okay? But John, John was a businessman who had loaned Todd an enormous amount of money. $5 million for a startup, a tech startup company doing AI research. But Todd lost all the money in a, in a risky business deal. And it came time for Todd to pay John back, but he wasn't, he wasn't able to. So John began filing a, a lawsuit against him, but Todd came and begged John for mercy and said, explain to him that he would pay the money back as soon as he could. And, and struck by... Todd's apparent repentance, John, John not just said, it's okay, you can pay it back. He said, I forgive the debt completely. This massive debt of $5 million, I, I forgive you for it. Later, one of Todd's friends, Jim, experienced a, a terrible divorce and lost everything he had and, and was living in a hostel. He, has, he had $5,000 to his name. And, 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 and he actually owed that $5,000. Jim owed the $5,000 to Todd, the one who's just been forgiven $5 million. The bill came due. And Todd came a calling to collect on his debt. His friend Jim explained the situation that his, uh, he has been divorced and he's lost everything. He's now, he's now living. And he asked, he asked him, if he would forgive the debt, and if he couldn't forgive the debt, at least give him time to get back on his feet. Do you know what Todd did? He refused, and he filed a lawsuit to garnish Jim's wages. So Todd, forgiven the $5 million, made Jim pay him back $5,000, garnishing his wages. When you hear that story, what do you feel inside? Are you enraged at the injustice? I mean, it was Todd's money after all. Why couldn't he demand it? 
Where, where does that feeling of justice and rage come from, do you think? Well, dear friend, I want to convince you that that feeling of justice comes from the God who made you because he's just. The justice of, of God is, is weaved into the fabric of this world, and that's why you feel that way. Even though Christianity says it's, it is good to for, forgive, it is, a thing, it is a good thing for the world, the forgiveness is a good thing for the world, you know that it is unjust. Even, even though, though Todd was forgiven the five million, it is unjust for him to demand the 5,000. He should have forgiven too. That is built into the fabric of this world, into your very being, because God is just, but he's also merciful. And that's why he provides an altar. And, and, and so the justice of God, the justice in yourself, it, it, it sort of shows and is, is, is evidence that there must be justice for sins committed against the holy God. There has to be justice. And so that's why God demands a blood sacrifice. He demands uh, the, the life of, uh, of one for, for the infinite sin against God himself, the, the cosmic rebellion against the God of this universe demands that a life be given. And the altar was the place for them to make the sacrifice for sins. He didn't demand their life. He could have. And one, one day he will demand justice. But God gave time. He wanted to dwell with his people. So he gave him the tent. He gave him the altar. Friends, sin is a real problem. But thanks be to God, in his mercy, he has given an altar, a sacrifice, so that you might return to him, so that the Israelites might return to him, but so you might return to him. Sin was a problem. The altar was given so that they might atone for their sins. But here's a further complication. As you move out to the courtyard in 27.9, just imagine yourself there. You shall make the court of the tabernacle and the court is where Jewish people could go, or someone like Ruth who has, who has said, your people will be my people, and has converted to Judaism. This is a place where a Jewish person could go and bring their sacrifice to the priest, and they would offer it. And as you're there, just think about in this, in the, could you put the slide back up? Just think about if you're in the courtyard of the tabernacle, and, and you're there, and you go there year after year, and you bring goat after goat, or bull after bull for a sacrifice, you would have seen the perpetual nature of this act, pointing to the ultimate futility of trying to atone for your own sins. You're in this, you're in this courtyard, and you're seeing the futility of atoning for your own sins. He's like, is this ever going to end? And will it be enough when I die for, for, for this animal, of this, the blood of this animal to atone for my sins? Why? Because you perpetually sin. So a perpetual sacrifice is necessary. That is one, I, one of the things I think the courtyard would have highlighted. The sinner had to watch the priest do the work and the, 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 the blood would, would pour out of the neck of the sacrifice and he would go into the holy place and he would wonder, was it enough? Is it enough? God designed it this way, friend, to point to a greater salvation that would come. 
to point to a greater high priest, one who did not have to sacrifice for himself or sacrifice perpetually, but, but one who once and for all made a sacrifice for sin. Remember, friends, this is the story about how God would redeem his people. The only one who could do that was God himself. And the story of the Bible is that God would come to dwell with his people, finally and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. John 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word literally is tabernacled among us. He took up his tent in human flesh and he walked around just like you and I, was tempted in every way like you and I, yet without sin. And that that one, Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, dwelt among us and lived the life you should have lived. He, he never needed the sacrifices of the temple. He never, he didn't perpetually sin. He lived that life in, of perfect righteousness in place instead of or for us. Jesus Christ is the perfect fulfillment of what the tabernacle pointed to. Your sins could never be atoned for by, uh, fully by an animal, but it pointed to something greater. The, the one, the, the God-man would come and tent and dwell among us, and he would take the sins of the whole world on that tent himself as he hung on the cross in your place, died for you so that you might dwell with him and worship him like you were supposed to. Christ, friends, is the fulfillment of this. In Hebrews chapter nine, Hebrews is a book about how Jesus is the better high priest, he's the better everything, but he's the, he's the better high priest, he's the better sacrifice. And in Hebrews chapter nine, verses 11 through 14, it says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve, to worship the living God. Friend, you were made for worship. Your sin separates you from God. And the way God is redeeming you is through Jesus Christ coming to dwell with you. Through the faith in his, in his life and death and resurrection, he has come, he's the fulfillment of all of this. Thanks be to God. And he, because he has fulfilled this, because of Christ's fulfillment of all that Exodus points to, now we can say that he also expects our obedience. And I'm not, as I said, I'm not gonna read it, but chapter 36 and chapter 38 highlight that the priest did everything God instructed him to do. He, he made the tabernacle just as God has instructed him. Now, our high priest, Jesus, did that for us, but it doesn't let us off the hook. It tells us also that we should obey. He expects obedience from us. He expects worship from us. We don't 
we don't obey so that we might be redeemed or justified in God's sight, but because we're redeemed by God, because he bought us out of slavery through his son Jesus, he now, he gives us obedience for us to pursue. This, this greater fulfillment in Christ fulfills us. Your obedience is expected. It doesn't make God love you more, and your obe- disobedience does not make God love you any less, but it's faith in Christ's obedience and death and resurrection that works in you to obey him, to set your mind on things above, to follow him, even through the hardship of life, to obey his commands. Not so that he might love you, but because he loves you and because you now love him. Friends, loneliness or alienation from God is our biggest problem. It's our It's the biggest, it's not only a problem socially, it is our biggest problem. Because of sin in the world and because of our own sin, and yet the Lord Jesus Christ, in the picture of the tabernacle, comes to you and shows you that your biggest problem has been solved and taken care of in God himself. The tabernacle is just a shadow cast by Christ, pointing to Christ. So dear friend, Student, as you come this year, there will come times of loneliness. You will have times of loneliness in this place that you might not fully be able to explain. Run to the tabernacle. He came to dwell with you. Stay-at-home mom, as you have sent your kids off to school this year, maybe you've had times of loneliness. Or maybe in the middle of the night with a screaming child, you, you... You've never had someone closer to you all the time and never felt more lonely. Christ has come to dwell with you. Through Jesus Christ, remember the tabernacle. Dear friend, maybe you experience the loneliness of just everyday life. Maybe you've graduated from college, you no longer live in the dorms, and it's just hard to make friends. Christ is your friend. The tabernacle, he's dwelling with you. Will you dwell with him? Will you look to Christ's obedience and trust in him fully? Dear friends, he has made us for worship and he's provided everything that we need to now fulfill our calling in this life that he's made us for. He has come to to dwell with us. The tabernacle tells us that Jesus Christ fulfills it and now you are the temple of the living God. May we worship and enjoy him as we live out this life of obedience and faith in our great Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.